Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the journalism.co.uk podcast, where we'll be hearing from one of the winners of the 2017 Kurt Shork Awards in International Journalism. The Kurt Shork Awards recognise the work of journalists around the world reporting conflict, corruption and injustice. Often at personal risk, they hope to raise awareness of the challenges faced by communities under pressure. The awards are run by the Kirk Short Memorial Fund, an organisation developed after Kirk's death in May of 2000. He was a foreign correspondent, working on assignment in Sierra Leone, when a military ambush claimed both his life and that of his cameraman Miguel. The fund supports the annual awards programme, which offers a US$5,000 cash prize to help support their work, presented at Reuters at a ceremony held in London. There are three categories of journalists that the Kurt Short Memorial Fund honours each year, one to a freelance journalist covering international news, one to a reporter living and working in the developing world or a country in transition, and, newly introduced in 2017, one to recognise the unsung work of news fixers. This year, 177 journalists from 63 countries submitted 531 published stories, but there could only be three winners. We recently caught up with Soma Basu, an investigative journalist based out of New Delhi, India, who this year won the local reporter category for her originality, attention to detail and impressive writing. For over a decade, she's been covering issues of environmental justice and human rights in the subcontinent. Her coverage of the skin trade and organ trafficking in India, which was published on March 6th by India media platform Youth Ki Awaz, won her this sought-after award as the judges said it was risky and a story that had never been written about before. Soma travelled to Nepal five times to investigate the story, interviewing victims and traffickers at her own risk, exposing the harrowing ordeal of Nepali women who are trafficked and forced to sell their skin to supply India's booming cosmetic surgery industry. The story sparked nationwide conversation and went viral almost immediately even reaching the Nepal government which promised that due action would be taken to further investigate the issue. Soma's piece has been read by over half a million people, shared over 40,000 times on social media and has been covered by many media organisations. When I uh, learned about that story about five and a half years back, I was in a conference interacting with a lot of journalists in Nepal. It was a, it was a conference in Nepal. You know, while I was talking to a lot of reporters, one of the reporters said that he has heard something like this, but he's not very sure about it. Now, I have a habit of keeping things in mind and I kept thinking about it because it, it really struck me, you know, it struck me, you know, that, you know, skin is being taken away. So I first step was I came back to my office, joined my office and I told my boss that, uh, you know, I've heard something like this. And at that point of time, I was working for, a, for an environmental magazine. So they were not really interested in an issue which concerns uh, uh, human trafficking. So uh, he said that, you know, this is not exactly, this content might not be very suitable for our magazine. So I stayed there. I did not have much option. So I uh, kept reading whatever material I could find on the internet. I read and read and read and tried to correlate a lot of stuff, whatever, you know, sitting on my sitting in my office. Then again, I went for an for a conference so I did a three-day legwork going around here and there in whatever limited capacity I could travel the, the next organization that I joined I was a member of a special investigation team where I pitched the story so they funded uh, one of the travel to the place uh, 
And when I went there, I was I went for about 20, 30 days. I was there and I went around all the districts uh, talking to people. I spoke to a lot of organizations, human rights organizations who were there, who are, uh, you know, who are working in rehabilitating uh, survivors of sexual abuse and, uh, you know, who are looking into uh, the rights of sex workers. So, but a lot of organizations said that they have heard about it, but they do not have any concrete evidence. There was only one organization, Shakti Samu. Uh, and there was a field worker who had come across some pe people in a, in a district called Kulubal Chok, uh, where she had, uh, you know, first reported about this, like, you know, in a, in a group meeting, a couple of people were saying that this is happening in their village. So I got, got, so I got in touch with the field worker. After a point of time, even she was scared to speak because, because you see, field, work, field workers need approval from higher authorities uh, in their organizations to speak about such things to press. So, but I kept on working. I kept on going there. Then I left the second organization also. Then I, because the story demanded a lot of time and my office was not willing to give me that time. I had to go to Nepal for, you know, five times. So the first two visits were, first two, three visits were funded. The next two visits were, I visited that place from my own pocket money, from my own savings. I kept going there, going around villages, with living in villages for say one week, two weeks, uh, having my own spy camera, speaking to a lot of people, posing as a customer who's there to buy skin, you know, all sort of ways. And uh, then finally, gradually, you know, I could come across people who, the first one I, the first survivor I met was in a, in a massage parlor in a very touristy area of Thamel in Kathmandu. So yeah, that is how, you know, slowly, gradually, I got got to speak to the survivors for reporters i don't think there is anything safe or unsafe because when we are into the process of getting a story like it happens with me you know when i am getting a story i know i'm going to face a lot of unsafe things or you know i'm going to come across a lot of challenges but then for me at that point of time the story matters more than anything else and that is exactly what drives me so and i forget about everything else uh when I came back to India after speaking to the traffickers, uh, I have been receiving a lot of phone calls from, you know, weird numbers, a lot of people calling me, a lot of people posing as policemen, uh, because even Nepal Central, uh, Central Investigation Bureau was, uh, you know, they had contacted me because they wanted to investigate the story and they wanted my help. So before the real policemen got in touch with me, a lot of people who posed as policemen, but they wanted to know about the survivors. So it's a tricky situation. I have to be careful. I have to vet my sources. I have to, uh, you know, I have to protect them. At the same time, I have to sift through people who's genuine, who's not when I'm giving any sort of information to them. So yeah, it is unsafe yet. I mean, I really didn't feel anything because I was much more engrossed in the story at that point of time. I published the story on 6th March and on 7th March, I went away for a vacation because I just wanted to because, you know, it was getting on and on and on. It, it was getting really emotionally exhausting for me. But there is a lot of things to do in the story. I'm certainly following it up. Uh, now, since the trafficking channel is very, you know, they have, uh, they're lying low for the moment because this issue is quite talked about now in Nepal. The police is also very active. So I'm also taking a bit of time. 
I would be visiting Nepal very soon. Not just Nepal. I have to go to a lot of other places uh, from where the skin is in India, from where uh, you know the skin preservation is taking place, and then you know this is transported. I have to do a lot of work. I even have to go to the US. But obviously, I'm an independent journalist. I do not have the funds yet. But I'm sure I will. Uh, you know, because if you want to do a story, there's nothing that can stop you. So I will be doing it very soon. The US$5,000 prize money from winning the Kurt Shawk Award has been supporting Soma in her work and she's just come back from Ethiopia where she's been carrying out her next investigation. She's also been able to set up reporteratlarge.org to help support underreported stories get told. Rather than it being a citizen journalism website, it describes itself as a community of experienced reporters who know, feel and breathe journalism but whose stories are not given space. It's kind of a network of reporters whose stories are spiked in newsrooms because of non-journalistic reasons, because of political pressure, because of internal pressure. And also, uh, you know, when the world is reporting on, or the newspaper is reporting on Panama and Paradise, there are a lot of other relevant stories that go down the crack. The second thing is India has around 26 to 27 official languages and the investigative pieces done in these regional languages seldom see the light of day because they're forget forgotten very easily because, you know, if it's not in English, it is not reaching a wider audience. So uh, we are putting, we are all coming together to, you know, to build this uh, network where such regional investigations uh, would be picked up, uh, they would be translated and, uh, you know, put out for the world to see. Uh, the second thing that this award really helped me to do was to travel to Ethiopia. Reporting in Africa has been a dream for me. Why? Because 20 people die in a shootout in US and uh, it is taken, you know, it is covered by the Indian newspapers taken on the front page. But, uh, you know, 300 people, 300 is the unofficial figure, 300 people die in Mogadishu and it goes, it goes as a brief. So this is the country where uh, reporting, you know, there are so many underreported issues and it's also very important to go to Africa and see what is happening because a lot of civilized, developed countries are actually doing a lot of uh, exploitation there. So uh, this award money really helped me to plan my tour out. I went to Ethiopia. I did not have a media visa. I did not have a media permit. And situation right now in Ethiopia is very difficult because there's constant government surveillance. Uh, you absolutely have to get a media visa to report there and the process is really complicated. In most of the cases you would be, and I'm a, I'm an independent journalist, so I did not have any organizational backup. So I tried that way, but the visa, you know, it, it was impossible to get a media visa. So I went all on my own. Uh, I contacted about 150 people from various organizations there, aid organizations to help me out. Uh, to reach the refugee camps, but I was turned down. A lot of people did not respond. A lot of people just picked up the phone and said that if you come in Ethiopia without a media visa, you, you would be incarcerated. So, but uh, I am I'm really glad that I could reach the last village, uh, not exactly last, but you know, a village just 50 kilometers away from the South Sudan border. Uh, from the border, that village, and between the border and that village, there are just marshes uh, from where the Mullah tribe people come to these villages and around uh, 200 to 300 children have been kidnapped from these villages in the span of uh, two, three years. It has been, it has been an ongoing issue, but uh, in, in April 2016, there was a big, uh, 
you know, this, this issue exploded. And a lot of people, even Ethiopian army, had to go to uh, South Sudan and uh, get a couple of children back. But there are a lot of children still missing. Nobody knows what happened to them. Not just children, women who were taken there, who were raped. Some of the girls who were just six-year-old, seven-year-old, taken away by the Mullah tribe. So I managed to reach there without a media visa. I've come back with a lot of material. I would, I've just come back, so I would be start. Uh, you know, I would be writing about all this very soon. I've not started. Uh, but this is also like you know opening up a gate because a lot of foreign correspondents are scared to go to these places because because of the government crackdown because they think it is impossible to go. But if a person like me who has limited money, who has limited resources, who does not have an organizational backup, who did not have a media visa, if I can get access to villages like that, if I can go, I'm sure a lot of reporters, a lot of reporters, you know, from big media organizations who, who have access to travel funds, who have access to, who have organizational backup, can surely go there and, you know, write about issues that are so underreported. We reporters have, have this thing, you know, we... We can send stories, we can smell stories. So I had just kept an open mind. I went there, I just, what I had on my mind was I will just go, I'll just try to reach the spot and, you know, measure the options. So when I went there, uh, I got a lot of stories. <laughs> so when I interacted with the locals, because I took local transport to that place, you know, I did not go by flight or uh, from Addis Ababa, it was a three-day travel in local transport. So, you know, talking to a lot of local people on my way who are who belong to refugee camps, who do not belong to refugee camps, but their relatives are in refugee camps. You see, that's how, you know, building network over the span of three, four days, because I spoke to a lot of journalists as well. A lot of journalists in Ethiopia said that it's, it's very dangerous to go to Gambela because even they have not been able to access that area. And Gambela happens to be the largest refugee concentration area in Ethiopia. So the point was just to go there and see what is happening. And that is exactly what I did. So my, you know, way of work has been really haphazard. It's been very, it's, it's been very unplanned, which I would not, you know, recommend people to follow because, because it's been a terrible journey for me. Like I, I, I am broke at one point of time, <laughs> you know, and um, now even my family members have stopped expecting from me. <laughs> Because I've been so engrossed with the stories, I, I have hardly, even now when I've come back from Ethiopia, I don't know where I'm going to publish the story, I just have the story with me. So I like concentrating on the story first, rather than thinking where it would be published or, you know, how much money I can get out of it. A fantastic insight there into Soma Basu's work as an independent journalist. So thank you to her for speaking with us. And if you're interested in checking out some of her work, head over to youthkiawaz.com and be sure to check out reporteratlarge.org. For more podcasts from journalism.co.uk, please visit our website.